0: Church, let's pray together. Father, we praise you for your faithfulness. You are faithful, and it is great. God, we ask that as we turn now to your word, that you would remain faithful, and that you would do what you have promised. That when we are gathered and your word is proclaimed, God, that you will meet with us, that your spirit will be what we hear and the intent of your heart would be clear. And God, that you would remove from our minds that which distracts the burdens we may have brought with us from this past week and the uncertainties as we look to this coming week. And God, that in this time, that you would be glorified. Allow us to see Jesus as he is so that we might be encouraged and reminded of what is already ours. As your people. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, a number of years ago, so I think Elena was about eight, maybe, Josiah six, which would put Tabitha at about five. Melinda and I began to notice a troublesome trend in our family, uh, in our interaction specific. We were beginning to be quite disrespectful of one another. So rather than responding politely to each other when spoken to, we'd begun to interrupt. And instead of using please and thank you, we'd started taking without asking while showing no signs of appreciation. And, and so as a child who was raised in a home where these important elements were emphasized and raised within a system, our, our schooling there drilled this into us into a, in a manner that some today might consider quite extreme, but, but Melinda and I grew concerned with what we saw taking place. Now, about that same time, we came across a book which spoke to the issue at hand that we noted, and it provided us with a great idea as to how to go about addressing it without being weird, because we didn't want to be weird with it. And the book was written by Stan and Jan Berenstain. It's a couple couple grew up not far from us, up in Philadelphia here. And it was entitled, The Berenstain Bears Forget Their Manners. Now, I would imagine that many of you have likely... Recall the Berenstain Bears books. I remember reading them when I was a child, so they've been around for a while. And this book struck a chord with our family, and it provided us, that's Melinda and myself, with an idea as to how we might address the deteriorating manners being displayed in our home. Now, I can't remember which of us came up with the idea first, you know, of how we might address these issues, but maybe it was Melinda. But we decided that we would begin to address our poor attitudes one at a time taking the first, the making of excuses. The making of excuses. When, when asked to do something, confronted with a circumstance, we'd become quite adept at responding with, well, I, I planned to do that, but, or I was getting ready to do that, Mom, but. And the existence of this but had become quite commonplace in our conversations. And so on a predetermined Saturday, I, I think it was a Saturday, it might have been a Monday. Now, I forget now. You think I remember in light of all that took place. Maybe I just chose to forget what happened. But on this predetermined day, we each picked a punishment, appropriate, of course, to the crime, that of making excuses. And so if Melinda made an excuse on that day, she would dust the living room. Josiah would clean his room. Tabitha would fold her clothes. And Elena would sweep the kitchen. Dad thought this was just a phenomenal idea. And because I... I could go a day without making excuses. I mean, I'm a master with words, right? At least I was in my own mind. And so I went big. I agreed to something my children had been asking for for quite some time. I agreed to build a treehouse. If I made an excuse, I was going to build a treehouse. Now, the planning for this big day made the morning that it arrived, as you can only imagine, one of great excitement where everybody was on eggshells, just watching everyone else, high alert, for a slip-up, and we'd already had a few near misses when Melinda called everybody to the table. I was in the other room at this point in time doing things vital to our family's business. Our livelihood was at stake here, essential to our fiscal flourishing, so I didn't come right away. Now, naturally, I was called, I was recalled, and recalled until sheepishly I made my way to the table where, as you can imagine, I was rebuked promptly. And I responded in a moment of utter madness, sheer lunacy. I responded by saying, I am so sorry, my love, but, and I didn't get another word out. I didn't get another word out. My children were like, excuse, dad's building a tree house, dad's building a tree house. That was, that was, I was done. i had been had at my own game. It's like they'd been plotting to take me out. Well, the deal was done. But, excuse, I know, right? But I'm a busy guy. I am not handy. So, so the treehouse has been on hold for till present. It is still on hold. Yeah, six years. But who's counting, right? Who's counting? Apparently, I did provide monkey bars with the assistance of my father-in-law. I provided monkey bars in hopes that that would suffice. But no, to this day, I've been reminded, as we talked about with our children, I promised to build a treehouse. And therefore, a monkey bars, zip zipline, it doesn't matter what you put in, Dad. It's not going to suffice. You can't take the place of what you first promised to do. The obligation is a treehouse. And I think that this is the principle that the Apostle Paul draws on, draws out, as he continues to exhort the Galatians in our text for this morning, which is in chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. God's promise to Abraham preceded the law given to Moses. And therefore salvation is received by faith, not achieved through works. And so if you would find Galatians 3:15 with me. And just so you know, I come by my excuse making honestly. My dad made the exact same deal and I don't know if you've been to his house and seen his treehouse. If you have, then you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm just kidding. I mean his treehouse is a mansion and it has nothing to do with making excuses you got to go and check it out. Last week, we saw the continuity of the gospel as evidenced in both the Old Testament and the New Testament by considering Abraham's children, Abraham's gospel, Abraham's faith, and Abraham's blessing. And today, we're going to see the relationship between the gospel's promise and the law by considering four questions, two regarding each element, God's promise, and then two regarding the law. And so, that said, let's read our text this morning. It begins in verse 15, as I said. Galatians 3.15, the Apostle Paul writes these words. Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, and, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law, introduced 430 years later, does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on a promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. What then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. A mediator, however, does not represent one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. So that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. And may God bless the public reading of his word. And so, as I said earlier, we're going to consider this passage's principal themes the promise, which is the focus of verse 15 through 18, there, and the law, it's the subject of verse 19 through 25. And we're going to do so by asking four questions where the first two, as I said, address the promise, and the latter two, the law, that we might see once again here's our purpose. That we might see together how our faith is what saves us, not good works or obedience to the law. And so, let's begin with questions concerning the promise. Where our first question is this, I believe as we see it drawn from the text itself. Can the promise be superseded? Can the promise be superseded? The first question. And that's the point addressed by my excuse story and where the answer for the Apostle Paul, and consistent with what I've experienced, is a resounding no. You've still got to build the treehouse, Dad. But why? Why? And, and this is where things become interesting. Because do you notice the comparison that Paul makes here? As verse 15 reads Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established. So it is in this case. So Paul appeals to his readers and their apparent familiarity with contemporary covenants, and that's the word covenants there that's employed by our NIV and fairly most every other translation, although if you were to look in the Holman, it would provide you with alternate renderings of this word covenant, such as will or testament. And so in the original language of the New Testament, this word covenant that Paul employs here is one that's used almost exclusively to depict the contracts entered into between God and his people. So as one commentator points out, all eight of Paul's other uses of this word covenant have this meaning. And these are given when Paul uses it in Romans in his letter, chapter 9 and verse 4. And then a little later in that same letter, chapter 11 and verse 27, it's this way in 1 Corinthians in 11, verse 25. Paul uses it the same when he gets to 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 6, and then a few verses later in verse 14, and as well when he writes to the Ephesians in chapter 2 and verse 12, it also includes the two other occurrences of this word in Galatians. Later on here in chapter 3, verse 17, and then in chapter 4. Verse 24, however, all that said, the fact that Paul here in our text states that his analogy is human, and so by this reference, he's addressing human covenants and consequently not divine human ones. It seems likely that in this case, he's describing a strictly human commitment. And why this is interesting is that to date, scholars have yet to discover or to uncover examples of either Greek or Roman wills or testaments that couldn't be revoked. So it would seem that first century Galatia was much like 21st century Georgia or Maryland for that matter, where it doesn't matter how set in stone your deal is, it's always revocable. It can always be changed. There's no such thing as stone that isn't breakable. And so sadly, we remain ignorant of the exact situation that Paul had in mind here, but his point remains clear, doesn't it? The agreement is unchangeable, as verse 17 concludes. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. And church, isn't this just a novel idea, this this idea of something unchangeable in our day. Our culture is almost exclusively defined by change. Our style dates itself quickly, language is dated, knowledge is dated even. You know, just how many of you are or know of someone who doesn't have a computer or a cell phone? Or if they have a cell phone, it's not one of the touch screens one, but it's a flip phone. You don't need to raise your hand because this isn't an observation, or this isn't judgment, this is merely observation. Observation of the fact of change and its influence or lack thereof on our culture. I mean, we thrive, for the most part, on change. And on the rare occasion that we do encounter something that is unchanged, our typical response is one of surprise and often disbelief, as given by the imperishable nature of certain foodstuffs today that ought to rot and decay within a day or so. And yet, somehow, a year and a half later, they look like you just bought them out of a bag. Now, we live in a world that is marked by change, and yet, as people, we crave stability, don't we? We, we desire consistency and, and the assurance that when we need something, it'll be available, like Wi-Fi, or, or cell phone coverage, or our spouse. I mean, despite all the words that we use expressing a love for change, deep down, we need the constant and this is the nature of the gospel. This is the message that Paul preached that was delivered to him, not by men, but by revelation from Jesus Christ. Because in the gospel, we encounter a promise that is as God is, the same yesterday, today, and forever, because God is the one who accomplished it. The gospel doesn't depend on us, weak, fallible, and changing people, it, It depends on the immutable God of the universe. So do you know the gospel this morning? Has it changed your life? You know the irony of this unchanging message. Because once you come to know the gospel. You're never the same. It doesn't change. But you certainly do. And Paul makes the point here. That the law does not do away with the covenant. And thereby nullify the promise. And in this explanation, I believe that we're led to an additional question where this isn't a second question as I referenced earlier as regards to the promise. Rather, this is more of a, of a subsidiary inquiry initiated by that first line of consideration. Namely, can the promise be superseded? So a secondary approach to that same question. And the question I think that follows is this. So are the covenants and the promise the same? Are they the same? Because you notice how Paul here seems to use them interchangeably. Promise and covenants there in verse 17. Are they the same? And I I believe the answer is yes and no. And so let me explain. In verse 17 here, Paul is clearly distinguishing the Abrahamic covenant from the law, which was given some 430 years later, in covenant with who? Moses, right? And thus covenant here, the covenant explicitly named is that made by God with Abraham, as Paul has referenced as early as verse 6 in chapter 3, and we've seen that together. And the promise here is that, as Paul expands in verse 16, the promise is all that God spoke to Abraham regarding his seed, which we'll examine in just a moment. So the covenants aren't the same, meaning that made with Abraham and that made with Moses. However, as Paul writes, the law does not set aside the covenant, nor does it do away with the promise, which I take, along with others, to mean that the way God promised blessing, so the promise, the way that God promised blessing to Israel through Abraham, and the way that God promised blessing to Israel through Moses weren't contrary ways. Because if God were telling Israel to earn their blessing through obedience to the law under Moses, then the promise to Abraham would be annulled. But as Paul so clearly states, the law doesn't set aside the covenant, does it? And so, church, what I believe this means is, as one pastor theologian puts it, the law is fundamentally a restatement of the Abrahamic covenant, applied to a, simply applied to a new state in redemptive history. It's not a nullification or a basic alteration in both covenants. The only way to obtain blessing from God is to trust Him for His grace. And in both covenants, final blessing depends on a life of faith, not just a single act of faith. Or if you want to put it another way, in both covenants, God's promise of blessing comes by grace through faith. It's not earned in both covenants. But in both covenants, the faith which saves taps into God's power in such a way that obedience results. Now, unfortunately, Israel and Paul's opponents in Galatia, they'd redefined the law's purpose. And so they felt justified in arguing that salvation began in faith, but then it continued later by adherence to the law. Because for them, God made the initial covenant with Abraham by faith. And then later, he added the law. So for them, faith was followed by works. But Moses, the man to whom the law was covenanted, Moses himself had rightly understood the law because he declared in Deuteronomy 7 and verse 12, "If speaking to God's people, if you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep his covenant of love with you. This is a reference to Abraham. And he continues, you will be blessed more than any other people. And so, for Moses, the law was merely a reaffirmation and spelling out, if you will, of the Abrahamic covenant where faith, evidenced by its fruit, and so that's love and obedience... So where faith was the requirement of both. Hence, the promise could not be superseded. And so this then leads us to a second question as pertains to the promise. And it's this. To whom did it refer? To whom did it refer? Where Paul provides us the answer, verse 16, when he writes, The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture doesn't say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. So Christ is the seed promised to Abraham. And he is so, I believe, for at least four reasons this morning. First of all, Christ and Christ only can trace his heritage all the way back to Abraham. So he's in the line of Abraham. Second, he lived a life of faith perfectly. And therefore, he's a true child of Abraham, since as you see, Paul notes in verse 7 here, of chapter 3, that only those who believe are children of Abraham. So Christ's faith makes him the seed of Abraham. Third, Christ's death and resurrection as the Son of God atoned for sin and purchased all the blessings promised Abraham's descendants. And then a fourth reason, and that's only by belonging to Christ through faith can anyone share in the inheritance promised to Abraham. And so four reasons why Christ is the seed promised Abraham. And so this is why Paul then concludes in verse 18 by saying that if the inheritance depends on the law, it no longer depends on a promise. God, in His grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Thus, in Christ's promised life, that which God gave in the promise to Abraham, in Christ's promised life, lived by complete faith, demonstrated by perfect obedience unto death, by crucifixion. In that promise, we find God's gracious provision for we broken, sinful people who have no hope of the perfection demanded for relationship with the infinitely holy and pure God of the universe. Rather, what we've earned is the sentence of death. And thus, what God gave to Abraham at that moment was the promise of a Savior. And Christ is that Savior. And he remains that Savior. Not merely for Abraham, but for us as well, church. Is he your Savior? Have you recognized your need? And have you admitted your sin, repented, and believed in Jesus? And as I say each week, I pray that every single person here has. And I also pray that you haven't fallen prey to the lie perpetrated by Paul's opponents that having believed in Jesus, now you need to work to earn his love. Because as we've seen The law didn't stand at odds with God's promise. It wasn't intended to supersede God's covenant with Abraham. Rather, it was a restating of the same, which I would imagine, if you're anything like me, gives us cause for pause, doesn't it? Makes us ask, or once leads us to want to ask questions concerning the law. So questions then concerning the law, where the first is the most obvious, well, why the law? Why this restating? I mean, if God's initial promise was never annulled, then why bother with all that God covenanted with Moses? And that's a fair question, isn't it? Like with our children, why all the questions and information about the watch? Why? Why? What's the point? With our first answer given us, I believe, there in verse 19 at the beginning. So would you look back for just a moment to verse 19 with me? Because it's here Paul asks almost word for word, our questions, like he knew what we were thinking. He asks, What then was the purpose of the law? And his answer it was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. And so the first answer that Paul provides to us as why the law is to exacerbate and to reveal sin. To exacerbate and reveal sin, as is evidenced there. where where the Apostle's description is evidence where he says it was added because of transgressions. And I think that that added because of transgressions ought to lead to a necessary question. And that is, what what does Paul mean there? Does he mean that then the law came in to produce sin? Or does he simply mean that the transgressions were there and the law simply came in as a cause or source of punishment? them And I believe that the answer is the former, that it came then to produce sin and I believe that because elsewhere, when Paul was writing to the church in Rome in chapter 5 and verse 20, we encounter what's almost a parallel passage in terms of emphasis. And in Romans 5:20 Paul writes these words, "The law was added so that the trespass might increase. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. And as we think about these things, I believe they make sense. When we consider, for example, think about this, how an attitude of disrespect can reside in a human heart, but it doesn't become evident to anyone until such time as a command is given and that command is disregarded. I mean, you might not like your boss, and yet your feelings towards him remain hidden until such time as he asks you to do something and you choose to blatantly disobey, thereby producing a transgression from a previously Invisible rebellion. And so in a a first sense in which the law produced or increased transgression, that is that it brings to light hidden sin. Sin that resides at the bottom of the human heart and yet is there. And then there's a second sense of this principle and that is that with the law, transgression in fact increased meaning more sin. It reproduced itself, which is the gist of what Paul also later writes to the Roman churches. And in that case, in chapter 7, verse 5, Paul notes how, for when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law, fueled, inflamed by the law, were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. In essence, the sinful inclinations of our hearts They're not merely exposed by the law, they're inflamed by it. It's like throwing gasoline on the fire. It says, one pastor theologian explains, apart from the Holy Spirit, our hearts are utterly self-centered. And when such a heart sees that it's being called into question, being criticized by the authority of the law, it seeks all the more furiously to defend itself. And so the law increases sin By stirring up more self-assertion, I'm right. By hardening people in their self-satisfaction and self-gratification, I don't need this. Who are you to tell me what's right and what's wrong? Now, there's a second reason or answer, I believe, that's given to us here as to why the law, but we're gonna come back to it in just a moment. Right now, I want us to move on and consider a second question as pertains to the law, and that second question is this well, why couldn't the law save? Why couldn't the law save? And this concern, I think, arises from where we get verse 21, where Paul initially makes the point, and we noted this earlier, he initially makes the point that namely that the law doesn't annul the promise, but it's merely a restating of it. Before he adds this, if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scriptures declare, and here I believe that Paul intends by scriptures, I believe he intends the law specific, but the scripture declares, Paul writes, that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. So why is the law unable to save anyone? And why does it hold everyone a prisoner to sin? And I believe that both of these questions are the same, or at least they have the same answer, which is given to us when Paul was writing to the church again in Rome, This time chapter 8 verses 3 and 4 where Paul writes these words for what the law was powerless to do in that it was weakened by sinful nature God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met In us who didn't live according to the sinful nature, what? According to the Spirit. So, why couldn't the law save? Well, it wasn't because of any inerrant weakness in the law, because the gift of the law was as its giver perfect. Unfortunately, we were powerless, we lacked the ability to respond and to to keep the law. The the analogy we use with the kids don't think about the watch couldn't do anything but think about a watch. And in that same sense, we lack the ability to respond to God's gift of the law and to keep it the mind that met the law on its arrival. Paul describes when he writes in Romans 8-7, he describes it as sinful, hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law, Paul says, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Isn't that true? I mean, as human beings, we don't naturally receive God's law with enthusiasm. And we view laws as as limiting, joy-killing, party-pooping. We don't view God's law, or or really any law for that matter, as soul-satisfying or growth-governing. And thus, in and of ourselves, we are hostile towards God. The law couldn't make us alive because we were ruled by our sinful flesh and without the renewing Spirit of God. And that was Israel's experience as well. Where God's law landed on those hearts. Without the spirit. Rigorous moral practice ensued. Rigorous moral practice. Displaying vigorous religiosity. But all of it was devoid of spiritual sensitivity. And Moses said to Israel. Records this in Deuteronomy 29 verse 4. Moses said but to this day. The Lord has not given you a mind that understands, or eyes that see, or ears that hear. Now, was Israel committed to sacrifice and to worship on the Sabbath? Absolutely. And did they enforce rule and live in hopes of earning favor? You bet they did. But all their efforts were for nothing, because apart from God's gracious working by His Spirit, which was a work Moses foresaw, as he said in Deuteronomy 30 in verse 6, the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. So apart from this work of God, Israel was doomed, and so are we. So have you cried out to God for mercy? Have you called to him for salvation, pleading with him to do as the prophet Jeremiah prophesied, pleading with him to put his law in your mind and to write his words on your heart so that he will be your God and you will be his child? Have you pleaded with God that he would perform on you the work he promised through Ezekiel the prophet where your heart to this point, hard and unresponsive to his spirit, will be circumcised, that sinful self-reliance Self-preservation, self-gratification, being cut off, excised, and His grace poured in, revealing His love, and your desperate need of it to live? Friends, as hard and as discouraging as life had been for Israel, as we know, accounted through the Exodus, and even into their leaving and landing in the land God had promised. Throughout all of that, Moses saw what Abraham had been promised. He saw that there was coming one through whom we might be justified by faith. And then I think this leads us back to that first question that we asked regarding the law. And a second answer that I promised that we'd see. And the first answer we gave to why the law was to exacerbate and to reveal sin. The second answer is to keep us and to lead us to the Messiah. And that's what Paul notes in verse 24. So the law was put in charge, why? To lead us to Christ. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under the supervision of the law. Friends, what this means is we no longer fall under the law's mandates. We don't live like Jews, following dietary laws, dress codes, cultural directives. Once that promised seed arrived, all of those things were fulfilled. And so now we live in a freedom displayed, as we'll see together next week, where we're all sons and daughters of God. We're not Abraham's children in the sense that we must distinguish ourselves through adherence to set rules. Rather, we are seen and known as those who have been baptized into Christ Jesus. We're now clothed by Christ's righteousness, and we're not known for our rigorous morality or high ethical standard. Rather, we're known, as Jesus said, Recorded in John's Gospel 13, verse 35, the new commandment I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Why? Because by this will all men know that you're my disciples if you love one another. So we asked at the start if the law superseded the promise. And the answer we gave was a resounding no. And as we close... I want to challenge you as I've found myself challenged just in preparation for this morning. And then even in the delivery of what we've heard, take some time this week to get alone with the Lord and to examine your life in light of the law that God has given us and see what the Spirit of God points out because remember the law's purpose to expose sin for what it is so get it alone with the Lord this week and ask him to point out by his spirit through his word where is our weakness and then cherish Christ and adore his grace That's the means by which he has saved us from our sin and brought us into relationship with God take some time this week to, to simply revel in God's amazing grace and then My favorite pastor theologian says, if God thought it wise and helpful not to let the sediment of pride and rebellion and distrust lie quietly at the bottom of the human heart, but instead stirred it up and made it visible by demanding the obedience that comes from faith, then then that's what my preaching, I hope and pray, has done. To stir up that sin that resides in our hearts so that we might identify it, we might address it, And I hope and pray that this week, as God identifies sin in your life, that you will address it, that you'll confess it, that you'll repent of it, make amends with those who are affected by it, so that you might point them to your hope, who is Christ Jesus. Emmanuel, may we seek to be holy as God is holy for His glory. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you for being a God whose word never changes, a God who makes promises that he keeps, a God who doesn't change his mind, nor does he lie. And so as we look to your word, we encounter truth that simply opens our minds to the depth of our need and the great grace that you have displayed in the gospel. Father, there's no contradiction when we look to your word as to what was the purpose of your promise to Abraham and that which you gave through Moses to your people in the law. But rather, we see a beautiful harmony revealing in both instances the desperate need that we, your people, have for you to do what only you could do and work salvation for us by grace. God, we thank you that this is a work that you do and that you have chosen to do through your word heard the gospel proclaimed. And, Father, we've heard that message today. And I pray for hearts that may be here this morning that have yet to come to grips with where they stand before you and the work that you have accomplished for them. And that to this point they've thumbed their nose at the need that they have. And of the sacrifice that you made for them. God, would you today, by your grace, open eyes and draw men to yourself. Draw women to yourself. May we stand confidently before others and proclaim our love for you. So that on that day when you return, Lord God, you won't be ashamed of us. For we have announced what you have done and and, and are living in light of it. Lord, and for we who are your children, may we be reminded that that... Your law, while we no longer live under it, it still is a beautiful tool that you gave us to help us live lives that flourish and point others to their need of Christ Jesus. And so, God, would you convict us this week? Give us time to to see where we fall short. And, God, lead us to seek forgiveness, to reconcile with those our sins may have affected so that they too will see the love that we have. And our hope that it rests in you. And we don't move beyond, ever move beyond need. We don't become perfect. And therefore, as your people, we are not to, 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 to stand or be set apart from them in the sense that no one can be like us because we're now so much holier. Not at all. God, where you distinguish us is by the love that we have for one another. A love that you had for us first where you loved us as sinners. God, may we show that same love for one another, a gospel love, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, we're going to stand as we conclude in our time of commitment.